learned that there's a lot of stories, you know, just personal stories that have to do with climate change that I don't think are getting out there enough. I think that we view climate change still uh, in parts per million and, you know, graphs and curves and things like that. And I think the story, the human story is being lost a little bit. Hello, my name is Barney and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Shahia Masri. Dr. Shahir Masri is an air pollution scientist at the University of California, Irvine, and also teaches at the Schmidt College of Science and Technology at Chapman University. He earned his doctorate from Harvard and undergraduate degree from UCLA. In 2018, Shahir launched a national grassroots advocacy project called On the Road for Climate Action, which empowers everyday people to help solve the climate crisis through community outreach and education across all 50 states of the USA. Shahir is the author of the book Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. He's also the author of numerous articles, and many of his studies have been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. It was a pleasure to spend some time with Shahir, discussing how early life experiences influence who we become, the difficulty in balancing research and outreach, the importance of individual choices, politics, climate change, COVID-19 and sustainability. I gained so much from the conversation and am thrilled to be able to share some truly expert knowledge and opinion with you. If you would like to contact Shahir, subscribe to his monthly newsletter, buy his book, or simply find out more about the amazing work he is doing, you can visit shahirmasri.com. You can also follow Dr. Masri on Instagram at dr.shahirmasri or on Twitter at shahirmasri. Once again, we encountered some issues with the intercontinental Zoom connection, which impacted on the quality of the audio in some areas. However, I am sure most people are now accustomed to the new normal of audio thanks to COVID-19. Thank you so much for listening, and without further delay, I bring you Dr. Shahir Masri. Dr. Shahir Masri, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thanks for having me. I'd love you to start by introducing yourself and a bit about your academic and professional career. Sure. So my name is Shahir Masri. I currently am an environmental exposure scientist at the University of California, Irvine in the United States. And um, my sort of educational journey and background started out, uh, so my undergrad was at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, and I studied environmental science in my undergraduate uh, training and ultimately wanted to do more to pursue academics and research and investigating environmental issues and uh, their influence, you know, to public health and the environment. And environmental health was the field that uh, really struck me because it really incorporated chemistry and pollution and environment in one. And that was something I was really interested in. So I ended up pursuing environmental health in graduate school. I attended Harvard University for my master in science degree in environmental health. And I ultimately did my doctoral degree at Harvard as well in environmental health, focusing on air pollution exposure assessment. So most of what I do today in my postdoctoral work and research in California is taking that air pollution sort of research forward. So I'm looking at air pollution exposure in California, in the United States broadly, also in China and Asia. And I've also looked at and done some work in 
the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Afghanistan, basically trying to better understand what air pollutants people are exposed to and how uh, basically developing models, statistical models, to help predict and estimate air pollution exposure where we don't always have measuring instruments. So it'd be great if we had monitors scattered out everywhere around the world, but unfortunately that's just not the case. So developing models to help estimate people's exposure based on limited sampling is something that's of value. And that's uh, largely what I work on right now. So that means that you've done a fair bit of extensive travel around the world to, to do some of your research, or is it mostly from, from home in the U.S.? So interestingly, the life of a scientist isn't always as exciting as going out in the field and taking the measurements. Uh, a lot of what I do is actually on the secondary end where the data has been collected, measurements have been taken, and now I'm the person that goes through, analyzes it, and uh, does some of the statistical analysis and writing. I'd love to know what led you to, to that field and, and to really being passionate about that side of academics and, and science that were you always interested in environmental science or was it just general science to start with? What was the first moment in your life or when was the first moment in your life that you realised that this was going to be your pathway? Were you encouraged by your parents or family? Was, was there someone that you looked up to, to to guide you? How did it all begin? So I think that it really dates back to my upbringing. My uh, mother was a very outdoorsy type of person. We were always going camping. Uh, she's also an environmental science teacher herself. She's a high school teacher, and she's, for 30 years, been a dedicated uh, science teacher and environmental science teacher, also biology. And that upbringing, I think, I was taught at an early age to sort of appreciate the environment and develop some sort of interest in, in protecting the environment and, you know, environmental conservation. So sort of overlapping science and the environment. When I learned sometime in the middle of high school that there was this degree in college that you could pursue called environmental science. I mean, it was just a perfect fit. I think I was fortunate in my younger years that I didn't really have to sit and belabor in my head over what I want to major in in college. I mean, I knew this from sophomore year of high school when I found out, you know, that, oh, great, there's a degree out there for this. Perfect. That's what I'm majoring in. So that was uh, just fantastic. And I think that in science, and when I was, even in environmental science, you have to sort of pick a specialty. At least that was the case at UCLA. Uh, what specialty do you want to focus on? Habitat preservation, uh, environmental health, geo uh, what is it? Uh, not geoengineering, but environmental engineering. And also, you know, there's a variety of different majors and concentrations. I was really fascinated by chemistry and science, and I was also fa fascinated by the atmosphere. So it was sort of a natural fit that air pollution uh, is something I would take interest in. And as it turns out, if you start setting air pollution and environmental uh, sort of chemical exposure out in the environment, if you want to go on to grad school, the school that is going to house that major is going to be public health. So you end up finding that public health schools are, are where you wind up if you want to pursue uh, environmental health and sort of your graduate training. So I uh, started applying to a bunch of different public health schools, and that's kind of what wound me up down the path of looking more so now at the human human impacts, I suppose, of pollution. But my interest started really at an early age. Uh, I was you know, just wanting to protect the environment, protect habitat for all species, not just humans. And uh, now that's largely what I study. But I think the implications of environmental pollution, as you know, and uh, most people are aware, contamination of the environment affects much more than just people, but all types of creatures that inhabit the earth. 
Absolutely. So where did you grow up? What influence did nature and the environment have on you? Were you in a city and then your mum took you out camping as often as possible and, and out on the field? Or did you grow up in ensconced in nature? No, I actually grew up in the city, sort of a suburb. I live in Orange County, which is one of the bigger counties in California. It's just an hour south of Los Angeles. It's a sort of a big LA suburb, if you will, um, but it's very, very populated. So I'm in a very populated area, but you know, you just drive an hour away, you can get well into nature. So we grew up, I grew up going camping throughout California, the California redwoods, those massive trees that sort of show up in calendars and all over, um, you know, people's pictures on their walls. That's not too far, just uh, six hours up north. So we started, uh, you know, camping up in the redwoods, doing hikes, just really seeing some of the most beautiful national parks that I think the world has to offer. Yosemite National Park, there's, uh, you know, Big Sur and Big Basin, which are state parks. And uh, as you go out further, not too far from where I live, you can get into some of the deserts and Utah, Grand Canyon, Arizona, Yellowstone, those big geysers. So all these just amazing things that Earth had to offer and showcase. I mean, it was just captivating from an early age. And I've just always felt close to I guess, nature in that way. And as I got older, uh, we started backpacking. So then you can actually go out much further into nature than any sort of car camping trip would, would offer. Uh, you put it, pack all your food on your back, your tent, your sleeping bags, pack as little weight as you can, and you go out for days in the environment. Started uh, also doing some mountain climbing, climbing some of the 14,000-foot mountains around here. Uh, and that was just exhilarating, just another way that I could appreciate nature and also challenge myself physically. I also grew up as a surfer in the ocean, summer, spring, winter, fall, you name it. My brothers and I surfing all the time. Um, So that was just, you know, just always outdoors in some way, uh, whenever we could, at least, you know, that wasn't every weekend. It wasn't even every month, but it was certainly at least a nice trip each year. And more often than not, uh, a couple times a year, getting out into the, the, you know, wild on some nice several day adventure. So did that love of nature and in the environment start from experiencing the environment or was it through the, the teaching from your mum who was an environmental science teacher as well as the academic journal saying that there are threats, you know, watching documentaries about the threats that exist and to our earth and, and to nature and then you fell more in love with the natural world because of that or was it from experiencing it firsthand and then the wanting to protect it came after? Yeah, I think it was twofold. I think that, so I do have early memories in third, fourth, or fifth grade of watching videos of Los Angeles forests that were succumbing to pollution of the air that were actually uh, dying because of the emissions that were coming out of vehicles. And I saw those images of forests that were only an hour or two from my house that were turning brown, pine trees that were dying. And I I thought, you know, that's horrible. And that's, that's coming from human activity. Uh, LA is notorious for the pollution that is, you know, a result of cars and factories and some of the geology and meteorology of the surrounding area. And uh, I think those early images and sort of coupling that with my early childhood experiences in the forest, you know, going out into the local mountains and experiencing those trees, I, I knew firsthand what we were losing. And I think that it was important to have that kind of pairing, uh, seeing the detriment that was being caused to the environment but also having that experience to know what we were losing that really informed me um, and sort of inspired me to get on a path of wanting to protect that. I reflect on that, and as I move forward in my own career, 
I haven't forgotten the importance of, you know, at least what I view to be important of children having those early life experiences in the mountains, in the forest, in the woods, or any kind of nature, just getting out. I think that's where you do cultivate a sense of, I think, ownership of our environment and appreciation of the environment and subsequently a, a desire to want to protect it. Was it grief about the, the potential loss of environment or was it optimism and hope about the, your ability and, I guess, science's ability to actually make a difference that drove you? You know, I don't, I don't think that grief has ever been my motivation. I think that it would just be too much to ask of myself to continue. I don't think it'd be realistic that I would be consistently on this path if I was just motivated by grief. So I have to also be an optimist, I think, by nature. And I do think that we have the solutions in our hand to protect the environment. And I do think that people inherently want to protect the environment. I think that, you know, a lot of what we see in the environment is not necessarily, and a lot of this gets divided up politically. People, you know, it gets politicized, all these environmental issues, especially climate change. But I think at the heart of it all, people don't want to destroy the environment. I think that there's just a difference in what people have come to understand is causing the environment to be harmed or a difference in the understanding of the extent of harm that is being caused in the environment. So that's where I think outreach and education and just continuously trying to inform people uh, as unbiasedly as possible as to what's going on in the environment and how we can actually make decisions that will help the environment and consequently help us. That's just an important thing to, to kind of continue as we all go about our daily lives and have conversations about the environment and such. Yeah, I just think that outreach education goes a really long way. And that's why the last paragraph of my book, actually, uh, Beyond Debate, which is about climate change, is basically sort of saying that, is basically saying that people who have differences of, of opinion on, on the environment typically share an underlying desire to help the environment. I think that there's just a difference in some people thinking that the environment is actually under threat and other people feeling obviously differently, like myself. Um, but realizing that we're all not foes, you know, there's a lot that uh, commonalities between myself and others who have different opinions on the environment or climate change. Uh, I think realizing those bridges, realizing the similarities that we have with other people, realizing that no one's evil, you know, maybe some people, but most people aren't evil. And uh, we can really do a lot together if we kind of um, start having constructive conversations and sort of lower our guards and just uh, think more as friends rather than as enemies. Yeah, absolutely love that, that really, as you say, that people inherently want to protect nature and, and their world, their environment, and live in a place that is full of peace and hope and love and also understand that nature is precious and it just comes down to the information and the and the phenomena, I guess, that that we are exposed to that guide our political opinions in, in many ways. I'll just say really quickly, uh, I think the exception to that is when there is tremendous amounts of money on the table to destroy the environment. And I think that's um, clearly happened throughout history and currently is happening where, you know, someone might elect to sacrifice the environment, destroy the forest uh, if they're going to get a lot of money. But by and large, most people are not profiting like that off the environment. Most people are like uh, you and me and others who are just living in this world and you know, trying to, you know, make a living and so on and so forth. Uh, and mostly are not tr profiting tremendously off environmental destruction. So while there are exceptions to the rule in the cases of people who might be leading some corporations into, you know, 
extractive industries that are harming the environment. Uh, most people aren't doing that. And that's, that, that's sort of the bulk of the population that I'm talking about. Yeah. And I guess even when we talk economics, there are many people at the top of a chain that are beholden to, I guess, stakeholders and, um, and shareholders that are probably diffuses the responsibility of protecting the environment, doesn't it? I, I completely agree. I mean, there's CEOs that acknowledge climate change and, uh, you know, the issues at hand environmentally, but uh, the way they corporate, you know, corporations are sort of set up to protect shareholder value doesn't really allow for much autonomy in trying to protect the environment and suddenly adopt a new priority within that sort of construct. So, uh, you know, a lot of these issues, I think, go deep down into sort of how in this case, corporations are set up and can't necessarily readily be fixed by or expected to be fixed by a courageous leader at top who's willing to sort of go against that, that structure. Yeah, I guess it comes down to that short-term versus long-term thinking. And it goes from the top all the way down to the, the bottom of the socioeconomic scale that many people that are living in poverty or, or week-to-week paychecks actually have to think short-term. You know, how am I going to afford my rent this week or how am I going to afford food for my family this week and very rarely get to think about the long term. So these sort of issues sort of go over the heads of those people based on circumstance. And then likewise with the people at the top, it's about elections, the next election. It's about ensuring that your power remains. And also with CEOs, the same thing, you know, what are we going to get economically this quarter or, you know, next quarter that's going to ensure that I keep my job and get my bonuses. So it is really this short-term thinking rather than the long-term thinking that... I think you 100% nailed it. Yeah. So have you, have you had to face that yourself? Have you looked at, have you had to start thinking uh, within arm's length of what you can do, or do you have to have a much more holistic view of your place and your role in the world when, first of all, being a scientist and coming up with new ways to analyze data and actually receive new data and also then to communicate that how do you balance the 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 short-term urgency as well as the long play that, that we have to actually come to for success well i think you're talking to somebody who hasn't totally figured out that balance to be honest i think that um i am still in the middle of figuring out how i balance those things and a lot of uh, the sacrifice that's been realized in my own life thus far is a sacrifice of you know having a full-time job that I just you know go to work every day bring home a full paycheck and and that I mean I've prioritized environmental outreach and climate outreach through cross-country traveling that I've been doing and a lot of a lot of public speaking because of that sort of work it's definitely very hard to have a full-time job. And if I was having a full-time job, I'd be sacrificing the things that I think are important long-term, like you said, long-term interest for the environment and preservation of, of the environment. So I think that right now I am trying to figure out, I mean, it's, I'm reluctant to be honest with you to just dive into a full-time job that sucks up all my time. And now I'm just bottled up. <laughs> I can't really protect and help and educate and do all the things that I think I'm really passionate about. And we're, so we're all fall in a couple of years, I'm not sure. But right now, what sort of allows me to continue to do a lot of what I do outreach-wise, writing books, um, you know, public speaking, is just research that I'm able to do sort of on the side at universities and teach a couple different universities. I'm 
basically have contracts at four different universities. I'm doing bits and pieces of things all over the place. It would be great to just settle into one job, have a, a steady paycheck, not have to worry about any of that stuff. But as you pointed out, I mean, I think you have to have a, if you care about doing greater things than putting, you know, just money in the bank, then it requires a little bit of a sacrifice of the latter. And when I find out a perfect way to achieve at all fronts, I'll, I'll let you know. But right now I'm still kind of figuring out how to, where I fit into all this and how I maintain a, a livelihood that is not overly tiring because to be quite frank with you, it's, it's tiring to um, try to fire on all these different cylinders. And, uh, you know, usually you're working more than just full time, as I'm sure, you know, you have a podcast on the side and I'm sure do a lot of this kind of interviews and uh, yeah, it's always a work in progress trying to find that balance. Haven't found it yet. And uh, (laughs) always searching for it. It's one of the uh, more interesting battles, the, the battle, I guess, within ourselves of how we're going to make the biggest impact, but also how do we follow our passion as well as gaining enough success to increase the outreach that we possibly have. You know, you need to be able to have a steady foundation to then be able to, to do more on the outreach front. Yeah, and, yes. and that's a really tough balance to, to hold. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, in the sort of research context, you know, research-related work will have you thinking very deeply about, you know, if you want to be successful at, at research or being a professor, you really have to give dedicate a lot of your brain power and time to thinking about how to construct very novel studies and better understanding, you know, whatever research objective you're looking at and, you know, how to design a study. And there's so much that goes into being a successful professor or researcher that that is dedicate that requires a lot of time and dedication and, and brain power. And I think that being in that line of work, you know, if I was to go down that path would leave me very little time. Uh, if I was to go down full time down that path would give me very little time for, for much else. So it, it's hard to know exactly how to, to balance one's sort of career and one's time. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess that's the best I can sort of characterize my, my thinking about that at this point. I want to go back a little bit to your, I guess, initial engagement in science and coming up with peer-reviewed articles or, or articles that are up for peer review and, and that will be read by academia to then wanting to move across and actually research and then write a book that is communicating to the layperson about climate change. How did you realize that you wanted to move from just being in the lab and, and just looking at the data pouring in and producing really, really I guess, rigorous studies about the science to then moving to communicating those ideas in a way that would be understood by the layperson. What was the journey there? It all comes from a place of wanting to evoke change. Even my entrance into the field of science, you know, I'm very passionate about science, but I wanted to evoke change from an early age, you know, and, and strive to you know, do better for the environment and for public health and society. And I think that my writing, I was writing blogs actually long before I was publishing peer-reviewed papers. So in my master's degree at Harvard, I started a blog. It was called uh, Toxic Talks Blog. And I was talking all about my field of environmental health and different ways that we ex- are exposed in our everyday lives. In fact, I'm working on a book that's sort of along those same lines, you know, how can we avoid chemical exposures in easy ways that don't sort of compromise our daily living standards. And I think that 
I wanted to, I'm just so, so excited and passionate about the work that I do that, you know, one just wants to share that work. And I like to write, it turns out I discovered and writing was just the way that I was finding I could do. So I was sharing blogs and it was always fun to see people's comments, people getting value out of those blogs. It was really interesting when you said that you started with your blog writing, I guess, while studying. When did you realize that you were a writer and a good communicator or did it take time to develop that communication and the skills of communication? You know, it's interesting. I don't remember exactly when I decided that I, I was sort of a, a passionate writer. I think that because I, I actually had the idea of writing a book and reached out to a variety of different agents and the constant and consistent reply I got from agents, which is the first sort of step in trying to get a publication, a book publication, was that you need to have a platform. You need to have a following. Uh, so somebody recommended starting a blog. So I actually started writing a blog that was a regular blog. And I was starting to publish blogs every two weeks, every week, every month sometimes. And I had a lot of fun with that. It would take a lot of time. I tried to research a lot for those blogs, try to really translate things from the scientific arena to sort of more public everyday uh, language. But I don't recall exactly when I, when before that I, I was I was writing in, in that same sort of regard. Just otherwise, it was just essays and papers. I, maybe I just liked writing essays in college. I don't really exactly remember it prior to that. But the blog was something that I really enjoyed and something that I uh, was doing for quite a few years throughout my entire graduate program. And I have sort of stopped writing weekly blogs because I've now started working on book projects and now I have a monthly newsletter. So I, you know, I'm always working on my newsletter. I'm also getting more involved in videos and things like that and trying to reach people through social media and my Instagram. So I'm not so much doing the weekly writing, but to kind of go finish with what I was talking about, the juxtaposition between blog writing and academics and peer review. Uh, the peer review papers didn't come till later in my graduate school, till the doctoral program. And I, as I was publishing doc, uh, papers in peer-reviewed journals, which was very exciting as well, there was no question in my head that I was getting more readership <laughs> through my blogs and through my writing than I was my peer-reviewed papers. And I think that that's just so important getting back to somebody who wants to evoke change, somebody who wants to have a message get out there that's informative. Peer-reviewed publications weren't totally satisfying that desire. So I've always continued to keep writing to the general public and translating science information. And in fact, one thing I would love to do if I was ever in a career position to do so would actually be to communicate to elected officials and really try to translate science to everyday language for politicians and for decision makers. So that would be sort of the highest form of, of what I could do. But in the meantime, I'm writing for the general public. And if an elected official picks it up, that's great. I actually do writing for a congressional newspaper, which is The Hill. And they that that is a, a paper that's read by people in the U.S. Congress. So that's uh, something that I'm happy about. And, and I'll just keep writing and hoping for the best in terms of getting my message out there and helping to you know, inform the public about issues of the environment and health. Well, you definitely are doing that already. As you said, The Hill, and, and you've got a, a book that's out and been published. You've also published articles and, and opinion pieces and, and science uh, articles in science journals as well. It's funny in, in the industry of science or even in, in education, and, and I guess in many areas, that 
when you're doing the groundwork and you're really good or really passionate about doing the groundwork, that you actually start to be taken away from working on the field or in the classroom and you end up in positions where you're no longer in the classroom or no longer in the in the lab. You're actually out there communicating ideas. And I think all the the best, or not not only the best, but the ones that that have an ability to communicate their ideas and to share their ideas actually end up losing sight or or losing the ability to do what they started off loving, which was, you know, I love communicating with children and teaching them in the classroom, or I love being able to discover something new with the data that's coming in and, and be the one that's able to to share that or to to realize that. So how do you find it the balance right now with you as a scientist as well as a communicator? Do you want to ensure that you're communicating to the right people and, and, and change policies within government, within Congress, but do you also want to make sure that there's also one hand working on the ground, making sure that you're up to date with the latest theories coming out as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you hit a great sort of point, which is that, you know, being too good or passionate about one thing can actually pull you out of it altogether. And I think that uh, I'm really passionate about science and environmental issues and climate change issues. But if you want to communicate those issues and if you end up reaching the highest form of communication where you're doing it all the time, it does pull you out of actually being versed in those areas and keeping up to date because these are changing so often. I mean, the the statistics related to pollution and climate change and industry and the economy, I mean, these are all moving parts, which are always changing. So yeah, I've absolutely made an important point to keep a foot in science. So I'd say right now I'm about 50-50. I am working half of my time in in actually data analysis, publications of papers, literature review, and, and writing for academia and scientific journals. And then about half of my time, uh, you know, doing this kind of thing, interviews, uh, writing a new book, working on an opinion article, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I noticed this very dramatically when I was on the road. I was doing a 40 states across the country, public speaking about climate change for over a pretty much about a year of, of time. And I noticed that as I was on the road speaking, you know, every day, every other day, sometimes in the most extreme cases, three times a day, there was no time to really read and keep up with the literature and the science and the reports that were coming out on climate change. So I think it was a real clear message right there that you know, you've got to take breaks and you've got to leave time to sort of stay in the know. And one of the most, uh, I think, gratifying things I can do in a given day for me is actually just to sit down and read. And I know that you mentioned you're an avid reader as well. You know, that's where all this communication really comes from is I, I love to read, I love to learn. And if I'm doing too much outreach and communication, it doesn't allow me to do that. So it's all about finding that balance. And right now, I think uh, with the COVID-19 and quarantines all around the world. I'm definitely having more time, uh, less time speaking right now, even though we are able to do some Zoom calls and Zoom speak uh, conferences, interviews, having some more time to, to kind of stay indoors, read, uh, do research. And I'm sure at some point I'll get back out there on the road. But uh, I, think, I think that having that time is very important to, to sit down and stick with what, you, with what got you into the field to begin with. You've, you talked about reading and you talked about being able to 
engage in your professional field, I guess personally, do you leave space for an area of your life that is regarding maybe meditation or or exercise or relationships? What what keeps you going on a personal level that actually enhances your professional job as well as your passion? Well, if you ask my fiance, I don't spend enough time on those things, but I certainly do ha- dedicate some time to uh, other things other than research and outreach. Um, exercise, extremely important. I'm out there jogging every other day, uh, trying to keep healthy because my body at the end of the day is is so important to keep everything running and keep me doing what I love to do. And in terms of, you know, re-energizing, doing other things, I mentioned that I'm really outdoorsy. Of course, I haven't been able to do a whole lot of that recently because of the quarantines. But yeah, I do find, I do find that it's really important to recharge and find outlets other than just, you know, work. And my fiance, Athena, she's a great person and she's a constant reminder that I do need to take breaks. And, and uh, she and I, we enjoy our time together so much and try to find little ways that we can plan trips and, you know, remember the essence of life, which is living, you know? And I think that when you're really passionate about your work, sometimes that can be forgotten. And sometimes a year or two years goes by and you in a blink of the eye and you forget that a big part of life is about love and, and about camaraderie and your family and your friends. And, um, you know, there, it's good to have someone in your life who keeps reminding you of that. And Athena is that person. And I really am grateful for all of the influence she's had in not only supporting all my, the work that I do, but also reminding me to take time for myself and take time for uh, family, friends. And, and she actually was a big person who was behind my road for climate action across the country. She was my partner on the road. We were, you know, day in and day night living out of a car, you know, pulling up to new destinations all the time. And she was really active on the back end of that project, organizing my talks and responding to emails and doing a lot of that uh, newsletter and things like that. So yeah, having somebody who helps ground you and supports what you do, I think is just so important. And um, as you mentioned, recharging, doing things that are, you know, keeping your body healthy, eating right, exercising, those are all just really important in the whole big picture. Yeah, so you co-founded a project called On the Road for Climate Action, which was about raising awareness about climate change. What did you learn while on the road? I know that you were there to actually educate, but what did you actually do and what did you learn from that experience? I learned that there is, for one thing, a whole lot of work that goes into grassroots outreach and activism. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was no small feat to organize a cross-country trip, um, fundraise, book talks. I mean, there was a lot of work that goes into that. And I definitely have an appreciation for people who do that type of work. Um, I also learned that there's a lot of stories, you know, just personal stories that have to do with climate change that I don't think are getting out there enough. I think that we view climate change still uh, in parts per million and, you know, graphs and curves and things like that. And I think the story, the human story is being lost a little bit. And unfortunately, I think that that's what you know, drives a lot of people to want to take action is hearing stories about somebody's house getting ripped apart or a town getting ripped apart by um, an increasing number of intense hurricanes or, you know, floods in Ohio. I mean, we encountered so many stories that are just really important to, to share with the population and the nation. And that was actually one part of why we did what we did. It was also, it was to inform and educate the public and, and try to get information out there. But it was also to hear from the public and hear about people's climate sentiment, hear what stories people have, what observations they were making about 
changes in climate in their own areas and to share that with the, the public. And I'm still, you know, here we are a year after my last road trip and I'm still, you know, just working to get that information out. I think I have 40 or 50 videos, you know, just all over my my external hard drive that I need to edit, that I need to bring online and, and share with the public. I do a lot of that through my newsletter. I share some of these videos, but it's definitely um, a work in progress. It doesn't just happen overnight, but those stories were apparent. And I'm actually, I'm actually writing some of this into a new book that I hope to get picked up sometime and, you know, whenever it's ready in the next six months to a year, that is going to document uh, and, and showcase some of the stories we encountered across the road relating to climate change, environmental destruction, and what people are experiencing around the country and really how climate change is unfolding around the country. But again, just to answer your question, I mean, I think we learned a lot about what's happening on the ground in the United States and just how challenging it is to do this kind of work full time just out there every day on the ground. Yeah, it almost uh, makes you realize the task that politicians have when they they travel to almost every town hall and they're they're out and about all day especially most of them at the moment are are quite elderly on the road right i I can't imagine how difficult that would be i I totally it's funny you mention that because i would sort of jokingly tell athena and family members that i felt like i was on the campaign trail (laughs) oh for sure that's really interesting regarding the grassroots and the storytelling and i think that that is imperative to actually making a difference in this space. But being someone that is evidence-based and in a field that wants to remain evidence-based, it can be really hard to get the narrative across while keeping to the facts because I know that, and without getting too political here, that the right side of politics or even the extreme left often remove the evidence in order to, I guess, get their message across. Whereas a lot of people in the centre and and I guess we call it the left now, but it really should just be on the evidence side of things, whether it's science or communication or whatever it may be. We often want to stick to what is true and we we always preface things with, you know, although the bushfires in Australia have occur- you know, are occurring and we can't say that it is definitely climate change, there is high likelihood that it is climate change that is causing these disasters and these events. But then people take that as, well, you can't say it's for sure, so it mustn't be true. The other side are telling right. me that the, these have always happened and they gave, they gave me evidence of fires in 1930 and 1940 and 1950. So you're telling me that, you know, you can't be certain as a scientist, uh, yet the other side are telling me this story that makes perfect sense. And I guess that's where, you know, we can get tangent off to conspiracy thinking as well as just avoiding looking too deeply at the evidence. But how do we ensure that we're telling the stories and, and engaging people emotionally while still holding on to the evidence and holding on to the facts and realizing that we may be wrong. And by being wrong, that's what makes science great. The fact that, he, that we are mm-hmm. constantly improving our knowledge and disproving things that we once thought were correct. How do, we, how do we balance that? I know that you're in the pathway of trying to do that, but have you mm-hmm. got a, um, I guess, a, a message a to tip. bring? Yeah, I think that it's really important to maintain, you know, remain grounded in science and to not sensationalize and overstate. I think that, you know, one of the ways to do that from the outset is to just basically, you know, say, hey, this is, you know, we can't call any storm a climate storm, climate change storm. We can't call any hurricane a climate change hurricane or any heat wave for that matter or other climate related impact. We can't just, we can't call it a climate change event. 
climate change events look the same as climate events, which is basically things that we're already familiar with, hurricanes and floods and wildfires and droughts. So understanding the the relationship between changing climate with intensity or frequency of these different events is um, a trickier science. It's it's become clear that we do have a lot of, a lot of evidence to think that frequency of record-breaking hurricanes is going to increase. So uh, a higher number of intense and uh, you know maybe category five hurricanes you know in ten years compared to ten years ago. A lot of evidence to suggest that this is going to be the case and that, you know, we really as climate, uh, as people who study climate science and science in general, we need to look at general patterns. But keep in mind that we can't really ascribe any disaster, any single disaster to climate change. Again, this is, we're looking at patterns and we can, I think as communicators, just state right at the outset, like I mentioned, that, you know, hey, keeping in mind that there's no such thing as a climate change storm, this is the story of somebody who experienced a record-breaking storm in this neighborhood. And what climate scientists are telling us is that we can expect an increased number of these record-breaking storms in the future. So I think just that messaging is important. And I think it also reminds your readers or your viewers that, hey, this person's not just trying to sensationalize, you know, they're, they're staying grounded. And I've actually in my public speaking around the country, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people in the audience who uh, sort of thanked me for not over-sensationalizing or sensationalizing whatsoever the story, but um, keeping, you know, with climate change, really the, the facts speak for themselves. And I think that all we have to do is speak the facts and, you know, we can just provide footnotes uh, when there's need be. Uh, and But we can still share important stories with those footnotes. And I think people get the picture and I don't think we have to sensationalize things. And I try really hard in my book to, to stay away from sensationalism and uh, to do that as well with my public speaking. There's two areas I want to touch on. I want to actually delve into the science of climate change on a basic level, you know, climate science 101. But prior to that, I actually want to tangent off to the coronavirus crisis that's hitting us at the moment. And the fact that Originally, I know that in the US there is much more urgency about the way that people need to react to this because there is actually a crisis, especially in New York, but um, you know in other areas too. Versus Australia, which has really done well to flatten the curve very, very quickly. But people are out there wanting to not wanting to affect the way that they live their lives for the greater good, in a way. And oftentimes, it's by saying that there isn't this big problem that we've been lied to. And I think the same occurs in in climate change. But the reason I'm asking you about the coronavirus is that you've actually been providing Instagram talks and, and other forums to discuss the science behind this pandemic as well and, and how to read the data and what to expect in the future. So the link and, and you've got an article recently that um, that you've you've had was it in the LA Times? Yeah, there's an LA Times subsidiary called the Daily Pilot that is basically circulated to areas just south of LA. Great. And and in that article, which I read, was the lessons we can learn from the coronavirus. And then actually, once we get through this crisis, we can actually start to implement some of those ideas within the climate change debate. So can you delve into a little bit about what you've learned from this pandemic and the reactions to it and the, I guess, the, the correct and, and bold moves to try to stop it versus the, the liberties that have, people have seen as a, 
an attack on their liberties and how that actually can end up helping us when we when we transition back to looking at climate change yeah well it's it's uh, funny you mentioned that the sort of objections to taking the social distancing measures and closing down um, you know quarantine and things like that uh, there's a march I think that was taking place today at one of the local beaches out here Huntington Beach where people are marching now in the streets to open you know open up the economy and open up restaurants but in particular open up the beaches because just this I think it was this week the governor um, or uh, it was it the governor or the mayor decided to close all beaches here in Orange County. So the uh, there is a faction of the population that's upset about that, and, and you know just kind of reminded me of the climate change you know topic that you were just talking about. Is uh, you're going to have people object and accuse politicians of infringing on their their liberties, uh, but at the same time, you know where do you draw that line? Is in terms of infringing on the liberties of people who want to live healthy and, and live in a stable climate or live without fearing uh, COVID-19 is going to affect them. So comparing the two and lessons that might be learned from this, I think it's kind of interesting. And as I talked about in the article, we're talking in both cases about a global threat that is invisible to the naked eye, uh, something that requires basically total trust and faith in science. And it looks to the, you know, in the present context that elected officials have heeded the warnings and expertise of scientists around the world in the public health and medical communities, which I think is a refresher. We've seen that be the opposite in the context of climate change. Politicians, uh, many of them, not really heeding any kinds of warnings or expert opinions related to climate change. So there's been a very different response in the political mobilization around these two issues. But I think that, you know, anyone looking at the two issues can probably decipher why that might be. Of course, we've all grown up with viruses. Uh, you know, we were all most of us taught to wash our hands and cover our mouths when we cough at a pretty early age. We're pretty familiar with that type of threat and the implications of it. And we also feel it when we get sick. That's just not the case with climate change. We, we're talking about a much more indirect threat and a threat that affects us through avenues that are actually familiar with us and don't necessarily strike us as being different. You know, as you mentioned, you've always had fires in Australia. We've always had fires in California. So recognizing a difference is actually, and, and a threat related to climate change is a lot harder to do, requires sort of immersing yourself in science and, and some of the reports and looking at overall patterns and statistics. So it's a much more indirect cause and effect relationship. But I think that there's a lesson that the country and the world is willing to mobilize when there is a threat. And it takes leadership. It takes political leadership at the top. It takes cooperation between scientists and elected officials. And it also takes cooperation by the public. You know, when we are facing a threat and we all recognize that threat, uh, it seems like we do have the ability to cooperate. A lot of people out here where I live are wearing face masks. They are employing social distancing. They're staying at home. So I think it's refreshing to see that we're willing to do that for the sake of the greater good and for ourselves. Um, there just needs to be a much larger showing of leadership in both United States um, sort of political arena, but I suspect other countries around the world. And that's right now not totally taking place. We're seeing most leadership in the form of the sort of progressive, progressive liberal side in terms of the United States politicians. And we need to see more of an equal showing across both sides of the aisle. As I always say, the earth is not partisan. Uh, earth is not going to cast a vote at the end of the day. But this kind of traces back to our earlier conversation about constituents and and what drives politicians you know it's it's votes right they want to get 
It's the short-term votes. So again, start with population um, and, and getting people to rec recognize that we have a problem. You know, one might even one might even posit that the fact that coronavirus was heavily targeting older people and then elected officials are mostly older people, that maybe that even translated to a heightened political response to this particular threat. Uh, who knows? But there's definitely is a lot more work to be done to try to inform the public and consequently influence policymakers to combat the climate crisis. We have definitely a lot of work to do in that. And it goes back to that sensationalization of things that some people were playing it down saying it's just another flu and others were saying this would kill this will kill millions around the world and unless you get to that point where it kills millions around the world and it's not doing that at the moment because of the worldwide efforts to to not allow that to occur you actually end up not proving your point and then people say oh it must have just been a flu if you don't look too deeply into it you know, flu's killing more people or whatever it might be. So the fact is that some right. people sensationalise the issue because our models project that without action it will kill X amount of people. We act on it, it doesn't occur, and people say, well, you were lying to us or, you know, we should stop doing this because it didn't. it's not as bad as we thought. And likewise with climate change, the, the idea that we can say that fires have always happened rather than looking at the evidence to say, well, if you look at the amount of, uh, you know, the hectares burnt or the amount, the frequency of fires or, you know, where fires are occurring in rainforests now rather than just the dry forests. So all of these ideas that people, you know, probably don't, not only don't have the education, or, but simply the time to look at it. You know, if you've got a business that's closed down right now and you're worrying about where your next um, meal's coming from, maybe you're going to say, you know, right now, yeah, you're saying I'm protected from this virus, but I'm actually going to potentially lose my life through starvation or, you know, wherever, which actually leads to another point about welfare and how governments and ec economies and societies should react to crises. But I guess that, that does go back to that sensationalisation argument that we have to be really, really thorough and careful with the language we use from the start to ensure that there is a short-term action that occurs, but that doesn't translate to a disillusionment that occurs in the long term. Yeah, and I think you mentioned it's worth just emphasizing, which is that, you know, successful precautionary measures are by nature anticlimactic. You know, if you successfully employ measures to slow down the virus, then there's going to be a slowing, slowing down of virus, which is not a climactic, you know, staggering number of deaths or cases of teens. So that's, I think, you know, having studied a little bit of injury prevention, in fact, uh, occupational health was my concentration in, in my master's degree, uh, you learn about all kinds of injury prevention strategies. And one of the key takeaways is that successful injury prevention, successful, you know, precautionary measures are, again, by nature, anticlimactic. Uh, you see less injury if you successfully employ some program to prevent injury. So, that's not something that makes headlines, you know, a factory that shows no injuries or something like that. But that is, at the end of the day, the desired outcome. Uh, but it's not, it doesn't have the same sort of uh, mental trigger in your head that says, oh, hey, that worked. Because if it worked, really nothing exciting came of it, nothing that really sticks in the mind because it, it didn't happen. And that's just something I think we need to keep in mind with the COVID-19 outbreak is that these successful interventions, social distancing, wearing masks, things like that, um, the desired outcome is going to be fewer case reports and actually fewer headlines, fewer, uh, you know, less alarm. Uh, but that's that should be taken as a reinforcing message, even though sometimes it's not. The issue is that we've 
actually been able to ensure for whatever reason it might have been that there was short-term action to stop the unbridled effects of this COVID-19 crisis. Yet the evidence that we're seeing in climate change is one of more frequent storms, degradation of our natural landscapes, you know, the insect uh, apocalypse, which has sort of been debated recently, but is still occurring, as well as in Australia, things like the Great Barrier Reef starting to have uh, mass bleaching events and the bushfires. I mean, these events, if they were stopped all of a sudden, people would say science, climate change isn't real. And, but also if we don't sensationalise them, maybe policy won't start to actually approach these things the way they need to. So I'm, we've discussed the, the COVID, I guess, side of that. What about the, the climate side of that? Yeah, I think that it's, it's worth noting that, you know, if things aren't sensationalised a little bit, that the message might actually, I think that that's actually makes it extra dicey as a scientist to be a successful messenger, but also sticking to science. And I try to walk that balance as best as I can. But it's certainly true that I think scientists have an inherent tendency to always use words like, you know, uncertainty or words like some percent of confidence. And I, I don't think those are words that and phrases that really resonate with people in a way that is that's understandable and interpretable. I mean, we as scientists use words like uncertainty in a very sort of strict statistical sense, but the population hears that and they think, oh, that's clearly means that they don't really, they're not really sure. But that's not really what it means. It's it's not saying that a scientist isn't sure that uh, XYZ is happening. It's just, it's a very statistical phrase that I think scientists need to really be aware of if they're going to communicate public because it's quite destructive to um, effective commun- communication when you're uh, not speaking the language of the public. So I think being comfortable to some extent as a scientist with letting go of some of your scientific jargon and some of your scientific tendencies and speaking the language of the public, I think being comfortable with that is something that uh, is probably important. And if you want to be an effective speaker and come from a place of science, uh, being able to sort of, you know, bridge over into that a little bit is useful. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to stray away from the science, but I think it does mean that you have to use phrases that are going to resonate with people. And you can always include in your article a footnote uh, or include in your article more detail on some of the things that we know more certainly and don't know in XYZ. It's interesting how you point out the language. And I guess where or educators or people that are looking at evidence-based fields actually are held to a higher order of thinking in a way, because you're not only challenged by the public, but also by your peers. And and there is a lot of collaboration that occurs in that field, but there's also, I guess, a sense of getting it right. And people are very, very quick to jump on people that say they know the science and it isn't predicted. You know, you're not the prophet that you said you were. And so people are uh, less willing to then make predictions. It's like, models suggest that this could occur, but there is that idea that the media will jump jump on your back instantly, which doesn't occur on the other side. You're right. The US President <laughs> Donald Trump can make a comment one day and then say the exact opposite the next, and he's not affected by his voters because they're really looking, and I've tried to to come up with the the psychology behind it. It's almost like that tribal thing. It's we we agree with anything that occurs because we're on this team. It's not really about what is said, it's about the energy or the um, the intention. But on our side of the fence, I guess, it comes down to no, no, no. If all of a sudden the evidence shows that everything we've ever believed in is wrong, we're going to jump on that 
test it and make sure it's correct, but then actually we're willing to change our stance. And and that willingness to change stance sometimes puts us in a in a really precarious position compared to the the other forces that have an impact on our future. Yeah, I think that the term flip-flopper comes into the political arena in a negative context. If you're a politician and you change your mind on anything, you're a flip-flopper, you know, and in the scientific community, that's not at all, you know, the case. We're constantly looking at data and letting data and science guide our thinking. And if the science shifts and, and, you know, certain things become uh, more convincing than other things, and certainly your opinions are, you know, you should be able to change your mind. Otherwise, you're kind of deviating from science, which is letting actually information guide you. But it's a totally different thing in the political sense. But I think that you mentioned Donald Trump and his the way that he communicates and he's successfully in some ways to his supporters. I certainly wouldn't go as far as to employ his strategies of communication because they are so out of left field, but, you know, not talking about the political left, of course. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> I think that you need to, you know, one needs to, especially if you're wanting to talk about science and have credibility, you've got to never claim that you, and I, in the same way when I talk, I mean, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. We don't know what's going to have happened in 15 years. But the evidence and the science is pointing to a pretty convincing um, place on the map, you know. And I think that, I think that, that those, those subtleties are important to incorporate when you're talking about science. You know, one of the quickest ways, in my eyes, to discredit yourself if, as a, if you're a, I'm not saying you, but just a, a person, to discredit oneself talking about science or policy or pretty much anything is uh, outside of just anecdotes is to claim that they know uh, what's going to happen or they know something. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it's going to turn off some element of the community that's, that knows that you don't know that. So I think just letting, letting data, letting science um, into the picture and reminding oneself that, you know, this all comes from convincing evidence, you know, and I think that that's the key is, is to not deviate too much into sensationalization and claiming to know things, but you know, that we have a lot of convincing evidence and, for people who aren't scientists, I think that it doesn't, you know, I've heard this come from people that I've talked to is, you know, how do I talk to, you know, the phrase climate denier comes up. How do I talk to a climate denier? I think that it's just important to remember that in some, to some degree, it doesn't really matter what any of us think about climate change who don't, who aren't on the, in, you know, career scientists or in the field studying climate change. Just like it doesn't really matter what I think about, you know, how, you can take this into the legal arena or you can take it into, you know, doesn't really matter if, if I think you have a fever or the flu, or I think you have COVID-19. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to go to your doctor, you have to go to your practitioner. I mean, so in the case of climate change, I think that we need to remind ourselves that it doesn't really matter what any of us think about climate change. It's, there's a profession out there of people who are experts in the field who study this day in and day out. And it really matters and should matter what they think about this. So sometimes I try to and people to just point to what scientists think and also to not not overstate their own knowledge and, and claims because, you know, there's something, I think, disarming in a conversation about just admitting that, you know, this is, I don't know. But a lot of these scientists seem to, to really be confident. You know, what are your thoughts about that? And again, probably going on a tangent, but I mean, I think that there's just a lot of, a lot of finessing and I don't have it perfectly myself, uh, but that goes into sort of climate communication. 
Great. I know that we're short on time now, so I'll, I'll start some rapid fire questions. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> so beyond debate, answers to 50 misconceptions on climate change is your the title of your book. And congratulations about uh, publishing a, a book. I know that there must have been so much work to have gone into that. Thank you. With those misconceptions, what are, what are a couple of your favourite misconceptions or, or the ones that come up the most that you can give a quick sort of summary of? Sure. Well, there's a, a few misconceptions that actually you and I have kind of talked about already, which is, you know, the for one thing, talking about climate change being a theory, that sort of gets into how scientists use the word theory versus how the public uses the word theory, and also other sort of differences in the language that scientists and the public uh, use. But to answer your question, one of the most common misconceptions about climate change that I encounter, which in some ways isn't a misconception, and I'll, I'll get into this in a second, is something that I actually start most of my presentations with. And this gets back to our earlier conversation about rooting oneself in the science and just letting the data do things. So I start my presentations off in the same way, which is to not sensationalize the current climate context. And basically, one of the things that you always hear, or I always hear, is that climate change is natural. Uh, climate change is is just natural phenomena. It's been happening for a long time, and you know we've got nothing to worry about. This is just normal. Now, there's elements that are of that that are true, and elements of that that are not true. So the truth behind that is that yes, actually, the climate change climate change is natural. The climate's always been changing, and it'll always continue to change. You know, we have a lot of good data that shows how the climate's changed over hundreds of thousands of years, and even longer. So the term climate change acceleration is actually something that I prefer. It'll never catch, I'm sure, but if it ever does, you know where you heard it first. <laughs> but uh, I think that climate change acceleration actually more accurately characterizes what we're talking about. It's the acceleration of that normal change, that background rate of change that's important. And that acceleration is dramatic today, and that acceleration is due to human activity uh, that is very well understood by the science. Greenhouse gases have always been an important climate driver, but in the current context, humans are emitting a lot of greenhouse gas every day and have been for decades and decades. And that's a leading to an accumulation of this very potent uh, heat-trapping gas, which is heating up the atmosphere and causing that accelerated change. And I think that's a critical distinction. Starting any conversation with an agreement, actually, is always a good thing to do. So I tell people in my audiences, you know, when you, when someone tells you climate change is natural, now you can go back and tell them you're right. You're absolutely right. Climate change is natural. And of course, you can go on to distinguish what's different about today that should lead us to be concerned and want to want to evoke some action and some change. So that's a common misconception that has some truth to it that I think is important to just fully understand. Uh, I used to hear that greenhouse gases or let's just take carbon dioxide, for example. It's not even toxic. It's not a regulated air pollutant. It's, it's therefore harmless, you know? And I think that, you know, we know now that, of course, carbon dioxide is, it's actually come under much more heightened regulation in the United States. However, I think an important sort of way to complement that misconception that car carbon dioxide is not toxic, therefore all of this, all of this uh, greenhouse gas emissions is not important is to basically point out that carbon dioxide is not emitted just by itself from a vehicle or from a factory. So if one wants to just think about toxic pollution and what's affecting our health, uh, let's just put aside the greenhouse gas potential of, of carbon dioxide and remind ourselves that carbon dioxide is emitted with toxic 
particulate matter, which contains you know, almost every element in the periodic table, it's emitted with nitrogen dioxide. You've got sulfur compounds, which are uh, causing acid rain. And uh, ultimately, you have pollutants that are bad for your lungs and causing cancer and things like that. There's a lot of nasty stuff that is entering our atmosphere. And in the United States, uh, 200,000 people a year are dying prematurely from air pollution emissions, a lot of which is derived from burning fossil fuels, from coal, oil, or natural gas. Um, so you know, we, if we just set aside the whole issue of climate change for just a minute, we've still got to shift away from these really dirty energy sources because they're killing people around the world. If you look globally, you're talking about three and a half million people or so that are dying prematurely due to fossil fuel combustion, uh, seven million if you look at just air pollution broadly. Another misconception is that the, and this is again in the United States, that the U.S. is divided on the issue of climate change, that the public's divided on the issue of climate change. Um, that's, I think, something that's very common believed. A lot of survey data shows that that's actually not the case. We have a lot of survey data that shows that the fraction of the population that completely re refutes, rejects climate science, doesn't think we're having, we have a climate crisis on our hands, is only about 10%, 15% of the population. There's some good research that's come out of the uh, Yale University on this. And some of my own research has found the same thing looking at how people talk about climate change on Twitter. So I think there's a minority that falls into this skeptic camp, but it's a vocal minority. And for years now, um, you know, something called balanced journalism has led to sort of an equal weighting or an equal presentation of these opposing viewpoints in the media, on TV and newspapers which has led the public to believe that there's sort of an equally, equal divide in the, in the population. But uh, recent polling, uh, national polling, shows that something like 40 or 50% of the U.S. population is, quote, very concerned about climate change. And that's just a very concerned fraction. So uh, you can see how um, overwhelming majority believe climate crisis is, is uh, a significant issue and are, are uh, not falling into the sort of whole skeptic camp. And I think that that should also open us up to wanting to have more conversations with people about climate change, because more often than not, we'll find that people actually can agree. And, you know, we need to talk about problems because if we don't talk about problems, we don't solve problems. So I think those are some climate misconceptions that sort of stick out to me. Thank you so much. I, I want to touch on the areas that, that you've already touched on, which was the idea that climate change in and of itself may not be able to be understood completely by everyone, but everyone can understand pollution. Everyone can understand the air that we breathe and the when we go for a walk that we want to see clean streets and we want to see national parks that are kept clean, but we also want to see that our buildings aren't covered in soot and that our cars aren't emitting and spewing horrible, horrible pollutants. And I think that's a key area to touch on. And, and I wanted to go back to your original right at the start of the conversation, your original point that the reason that you entered the field is not only your love for the environment, but also for people as well, that really it's going to be the people that are most impoverished or most on the verge, you know, either in developing nations around the world or on the, on the fringes of developed societies as well, or more developed, um, at least socioeconomic, that we have fragments of society that are going to feel the brunt of this first. And they're going to be the people that, that feel the threat of the science 
against their jobs or livelihoods. So people that work in factories or people that work in mines or people that actually are put on the front lines in danger, whether it's the fire brigade, the military, people that oftentimes we call heroes and and are definitely heroic in so many ways are actually put in the most harm when it comes to these these pollutants that we actually end up benefiting from, the people that can buy more and more goods and the people that can have bigger and bigger houses in more and more developed cities. So I think the message has to come from going right back and stripping it back again to that values and that we value human life and we value thriving and we want everyone to thrive. And, you know, that if the economy will completely fall apart because of social isolation, then we've got to balance that up, you know, with the two areas from the disease versus the effects of economic collapse, as well as mm-hmm. in the climate change debate, you know, that if climate change science and, and what's going to happen wasn't as bad as the economic, you know, the economic collapse or people losing their jobs, then we'd actually really strongly fight for the people. And do you agree with that, that you're, you're there to fight for people and that the science that you study and the way that you're communicating is because of, I guess, your love and, and care for people? Yeah, I mean, I think that my passion comes from just caring about the environment, which includes people. You know, I think that we always hear climate and or we always hear the environment and society as sort of disconnected entities. But I always seen them as the same. And I, I continue to assert that, you know, they're very, you know, when we talk about the environment, we can't talk about the environment as a, as an entity that doesn't directly affect people. Um, so I'm really concerned about everyone and everything that inhabits the earth and trying to improve the quality of life for just all living things. And, and humans uh, are a big part of, of what we need to protect. And I think that environmental, uh, the climate crisis really is down at its root. It's a major, uh, not only ecological crisis and societal crisis, but it's also an environmental justice crisis. And you, you talked about differences in people's living standards. And a lot of the climate crisis is being driven by, um, you know, Western civilization and more increasingly so uh, China with air pollution emissions and carbon dioxide emissions, but by people with very consuming lifestyles, you know, eating high on the food chain, uh, driving cars, flying around the country. You know, there's no question that the individuals, populations, both within this country and also around the world that are going to be suffering the most are the poorest and have actually contributed least to the problem, including many African countries and even more uh, low socioeconomic demographics within even Western society. So I think that we have a major environmental but also social crisis on our hands. Populations, entire populations left behind as adapt to climate change. There's already islands, you know, the sea level rise that are going to be disappearing moving forward. And they're having trouble having a voice in the whole climate saga and getting the attention of some of the larger nations to, to address climate change. Um, you know, this is an issue that is really affecting the planet and society in almost every different sort of way you can think about it. And I think that, you know, it only underscores the importance of addressing and treating this this crisis in a serious manner. The COVID-19 crisis that we were talking about, um, a lot of mortality resulting from this. But um, increasingly, the World Health Organization is also talking about climate change and projecting mortality related to climate change. And it's uh, something like 
150,000 deaths caused, premature deaths caused by climate change thus far, and an estimated, I looked at their most recent estimate as estimating about 12,000 a year over the next 20 years, about 250,000 from 2030 to 2050. Now, that's just a number that is projected. And of course, it's extremely difficult to understand um, the far-reaching impacts of climate change, especially as things accelerate. But the overall message is that you know, climate change, like COVID-19, like many other crises like war, is currently and will continue to lead to increased mortality around the country. And uh, a lot of that will uh, be suffered by people of lower socioeconomic status, uh, more impoverished nations. And there's just no there's just no sound way that I think we can justify that being acceptable and, uh, you know, leaving populations behind to deal with sort of the mess of what a lot of Western civilizations and more affluent societies have created. So I think that we just need to bear in mind the context and, you know, sort of what's at stake. Absolutely. I know we've reached the end of our time together and I've just got a couple of little things I'd like to touch on very quickly. The one is, uh, first of all, I guess the idea of living life to its fullest is, is so important. And that's something that I've taken from this, that everyone's staying at home and everyone not using anything that would emit any carbon into our atmosphere would be ideal for the repairing of our earth. And over time, it would help repair our earth, but also, you know, we wouldn't be spreading any viruses, but that's no way to live either. So I think that the major thing to understand is that there are solutions and you outline this in your, in your book as well, that there are so many solutions. The engineering has been done. The technology is there to actually transition our whole society to a clean energy society to live better lives that actually have no, well, different consequences, but the consequences that we're having to deal with now would be minimalized to an extent where we're living in harmony once again with nature, as you say, rather than as opposed or as separate to nature. And that is so, so key. So that is something that I took from the conversation, but also some of the stuff I've read from you, which is really important and valuable. One last question I want to ask you is your moment of clarity. Is there something that has driven you to have a moment of clarity recently or through this conversation or due to being home a lot more? Have you had a moment of clarity recently that you'd like to share with us today? That's a good question, and I don't encounter it that often. I don't think I ever have. <laughs> so throughout this conversation, I mean, I think it's been really nice to dive into some of the early parts of my life that actually led me to where I am now. I think that um, it's a reminder that of the importance, I think, of communicating to our children uh, issues of you know importance, issues of the environment, issues that are going on in the world, and also exposing oneself and children to the outdoors and to this wonderful planet that we all have the fortune of living on. I think that there's overall clarity that I think I'm hoping has pervaded throughout a a lot of different fractions of society, which is also just how, you know, you mentioned living at home and how we've all been sort of under quarantine, about how much more efficient we can live our societies, uh, live in our our sort of day and age and live out our daily lives. And people, I think, these days are going to the grocery store a lot less. It doesn't mean they're buying less food. It just means they're taking fewer trips. 
And the same goes for a lot of other instances of getting in your car and going somewhere. I think that we're used to as a normal society, just kind of driving everywhere all the time and, you know, not necessarily being very organized about how we approach our daily trips to the store, the market, and maybe going three or four times to the stores to get things. And, you know, this all, you know, multiplied over the whole entire population has catastrophic impacts to pollution and air quality. And I think that um, the same thing can be said for food waste. We have I think a lot more people thinking carefully about how they waste food in their daily lives. In the United States, something like 40% of agricultural products are completely wasted. They don't actually go into anybody's belly. They are just wasted somewhere along the whole production to plate. And uh, that's a really high number, which comes with a lot of environmental pollution and waste. But I think today people are wanting to, again, go to the grocery store as seldom as possible. They're wanting to not run out of food because we're in a crisis. So I, I think that people are conscientious about not letting food go to waste. And I think that these are just messages that we can take uh, along with us after we sort of come out of this, you know, just thinking about how we can live more efficiently in our daily lives. And of course, increased efficiency means less waste, less pollution of the environment, and ultimately a better environment and improved environment for everybody. Thank you. I oh, just really quickly, you have, sure. um, expressed hope as your driver and do you have hope that we can get through this first of all this climate crisis i know that the covid crisis is many people have hope about but the climate crisis and is it up to us as individuals and our choices that we make every day are they really that important or is it really about engaging policymakers and business to make the change or is it a combination of both you know, I think that if consu- so consumers have the power to single-handedly, uh, I should say almost single-handedly, address climate change. That power is in the hands of consumers. It's something that we do every day. We vote with our dollar. We either vote in favor of or not of certain products. We're the ones who drive demand for energy and demand for extractive ind- industries. And ultimately, pollution and cons- consumption is uh, is the key there. So behavioral change is an enormously important role in the story here. But we've been talking about carbon footprint for a very long time in this field, and we haven't seen a whole lot of, you know, we haven't seen enough change to counteract the dramatic growth in, you know, economic growth, population growth that is driving demand for, again, all these commodities and for energy and so on and so forth. So if we're going to really draw down greenhouse or I should say, um, minimize greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to have to see really systemic changes throughout our energy infrastructure. And that is going to have to come from communities that are adopting community choice energy and moving to solar and wind and having basically people vote differently, elected officials who want to see changes, who want to see climate action. But I, you know, I'm a person who collects rainwater off my roof when it rains. I eat very little... Uh, very few animal products whatsoever. I, I am constantly turning off lights in my house. I'm driving as little as I have to. I'm biking as much as I can. So uh, those behavioral changes are those behavioral actions are things that I take in my everyday lifestyle. And I think that every person really needs to think seriously about that. So I don't see it as an either or as much as a sort of collective approach. And I think that collective approach includes uh, political action and civic engagement. And it includes talking with friends, family, and and community outreach, but it also includes uh, personal behavioral change. Unfortunately, you know, we don't get to, I don't think, 
I don't think we can just expect changes to happen if we're not willing to make sacrifices in our own daily lives and align ourselves with those uh, overarching improvements in the environment that we'd like to see. Thank you so much. I'd love you to let us all know where we can find you and your work and even a couple of recommendations you may have for us to explore as well. Sure. So I have actually recently rehauled my whole website. If you go to shahirmossery.com, you'll get to my website. You can also get there through roadforaction.com. But if you go to my website, you can pick up a copy of my book. You can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter. You can find my email if you want to shoot me a message. And importantly, I've actually designed this website much differently with the intent of giving resources to the everyday person. Uh, If you go to the resources tab on my website, which I'm constantly adding to, you can actually tap into climate reports, uh, news and web resources that'll help you become more informed. You can look up climate action groups, which are actually both at a local, national, and global level. You can find climate books, environment books, and other book recommendations. I'm actually working on a full-on book review on the website that'll give people articles about different books and recommendations. I've got climate memes, so you can share these. These are memes I created that you can share on Instagram. Uh, And then I've got a climate fast facts section where if you're somebody who wants to go out there and give a presentation on climate change, I'm going to give you resources where you can actually include bullet points in your presentations, which are fact-based. I have all these resources that are linked up. And ultimately, I intend to get actual PowerPoint slides on here. So again, that's the resources tab on my website, shahirmossery.com. And you can also uh, follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, it's doctor.shahirmossery. And uh, I look forward to having anybody you know, reach out if they have any questions. I've got lots of videos, publications, uh, and, and other info and content on my website, which I hope will be a good resource for people who want to learn more about these topics and get involved. Thank you so much. I'm incredibly grateful for this opportunity to have this chat as well as to hear oh, so much informative and detailed information, as well as the fact that we've got to share in your energy and your passion and the way that you've actually harnessed that passion and put it towards action as well. That's really inspiring. And I'm sure lots of people will be as inspired, but it's really inspired me to continue trying to find ways to harness passion and energy and, and put it to to good use. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your work and and getting these great conversations out there to the public and asking great questions. Uh, I I really appreciate the opportunity to converse with you. And uh, I'm always here, like I said, as as a resource or a person to chat with about these issues. Appreciate all of the followers that you have who tap into these stories. I think this is all part of the important story that we need to see that's going to sort of lift us up and get us to where we need to go in terms of improving the, the world. Fantastic. Appreciate that so much. And um, I'll share all of the details in the show notes as well. So thank you for your time. Great. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.